This is a special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast on COVID-19 research updates with Dr. Yosef Penninger. Hey, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast for this special episode. We usually culture knowledge and stem cell research, talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But today, we're going a little bit farther afield, talking to a stem cell expert, but about this COVID-19 crisis. Before we get to that, do you love the Stem Cell Podcast and have thoughts on how we could make it even better? We want to hear from you from now until May 12th. Take our online feedback survey and tell us what you, the listeners, think of us. Participants will be entered into a draw to win a Stem Cell Podcast branded Goldie Wireless Speaker. To participate, visit StemCellPodcast.com slash survey. It was about a year ago now that we had Dr. Yosef Penninger on the podcast to talk about his research developing human blood vessel organoids. Today, he's back to talk about his work into the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights, this time though, with the emphasis on the COVID crisis. Um, but before we get to that... But first, researchers around the world are working tirelessly to study SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, this also includes Dr. Penninger, today's guest. As scientists helping scientists, Stem Cell would like to help by offering relevant products, resources, and support. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash COVID-19-tools. All right. So as I said early in the intro, we're having an emphasis on COVID-19 research for this roundup. And I'm going to start with just a couple brief little tidbits. It may even be old news by the time you guys hear this because things are moving so fast. But first, I want to talk about what's been in the news and in politics even a lot. This idea of treating patients with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Okay, A lot of people have been proponents of this therapy. Some have said that maybe it's premature or even reckless. Um, and a lot of the reason people think it may be dangerous for some patients is because it's been documented in the past that this treatment um, can have an effect on the QT interval, right? Uh, but let's get back to COVID. You know, there was an idea that was suggested relatively early on, maybe prematurely, the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, the so-called ZPAC, may have a favorable effect on the clinical outcomes, reducing viral loads in infected patients. Um, and because this, you know, caught the news, uh, caught fire in the news, there was massive, widespread adoption of the regimen just because we didn't really have anything else, right? Um, but the, both these medications independently, as I said, have been shown to increase the QT interval in a lot of patients, which can lead to this drug-induced ventricular tachycardia or even drug-induced sudden cardiac death, right? So at NYU, a group of physicians uh, led by Lior Jankelson uh, at the New York uh, University Langone Health Center, they, you know, were admitting a lot of patients clearly. And so they sent this correspondence to Nature Medicine to uh, illuminate us on their results. And they were giving a lot of patients this combo, um, the hydroxy Z-Pak combo. And they observed, uh, not surprisingly, that there was a prolongation of the uh, corrected QT interval. Um, and in a subset of patients, even 10% of them, the QT interval was severely prolonged to a dangerous level and put them at high risk of malignant arrhythmia and sudden cardiac death. Bear in mind, none of the patients uh, died of a cardiac event, although some did die of the disease. Uh, a lot of them still remain admitted. 
Um, but another little insight here that I think was was what the takeaway uh, is that in the past, people have, have pointed towards studies where this combination resulted in a mild prolongation of the QT interval, but this was using young, healthy volunteers. And in this patient population with a lot of comorbidities and the older patients, and effect, especially the ones affected by the disease, they've noted that there is this significantly prolonged QT interval. And so, you know, looking at that discrepancy, I think it maybe reconciles a, a lot of the disparate results. And I think it, it really shines a light on how we have to be cautious moving forward with this as a potential therapy. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Arun, but a lot of people uh, have politicized this thing. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's high time that we've had a, a scientific perspective that really objectively look at the results. And that's here now. Yeah, man, this is uh, this is serious stuff. I mean, I want to preface this by saying, like, neither one of us are, you know, clinicians. Right. But we do know that there are a lot of drugs out there that can prolong the QT interval. And, you know, perhaps there's some association here as well. This is serious stuff. Anytime you're developing a new drug or testing a new drug, this is something you have to evaluate. And in fact, this is something where, you know, a stem cell model could help when it comes to evaluating QT interval, evaluating arrhythmias and stuff like that. You want to be able to identify potentially toxic drugs in a safe preclinical setting. So say if you use IPS cardiomyocytes. And in fact, like I know people are like drug companies and the FDA are actually starting to use those cells to to test out to see if the QT interval can be prolonged um, or, you know, uh, something similar can be prolonged in those cells when they're subjected to drugs like these. So, you know, it's, it's important. It's really serious. I think, uh, this is something that's been known with this combination of drugs for a while now, but anytime you are, um, trying to mass use a drug like this, it's something that you have to take into consideration. Yes. Particularly in this vulnerable population, right? I mean, I know we're desperate, but, uh, we have to be sensible about this thing. Now on a brighter note, uh, this is definitely going to be in the news and probably old news. And there's a whole field of, uh, you know, a bunch of vaccines that have been developed, different approaches, RNA-based, DNA-based. One of the early contenders, a more traditional vaccine that was uh, in consideration um, from a Chinese group, uh, Sinovac Biotech, they've actually just now shown for the first time that this vaccine, which is a more traditional a vaccine that's made by chemically inactivating the virus, that they uh, they injected it into rhesus macaques and showed that it uh, led to some protection. After three weeks, um, after introducing the vaccine, uh, they introduced the virus into the monkey's lungs and none of them developed full-blown infection. They like actually gavage, put the thing in their lungs through the trachea and they didn't get mm. the infection. So, I mean, that's very encouraging. Yeah, no, I mean, it kind of points to the importance of uh, animal models in um, in this entire setting. I know there are some animal models out there that obviously aren't as susceptible to the virus in general. So you really have to kind of pick and choose which animals are going to be used for your testing. But uh, but this seems you know pretty promising. Yeah, and I think it's, a, as you just alluded to, it's really great news moving forward that the macaque may be a good model. So we can roll out a lot of the vaccines. And this is a nice proof of principle in terms of which animal model is going to be receptive. Um, so that's uh, more encouraging news for all the other vaccine groups that are working towards a solution.
yeah, it's not always the easiest thing to uh, to house macaques, but you know, certainly if it's if it's being shown that they're useful for uh, for these purposes, then perhaps this is a shift we have to make. So next thing is a uh, it's a diagnostics paper. It's a CRISPR Cas12 uh, based detection of SARS-CoV-2. This is in Nature Biotechnology and coming from from Boston. Some folks at uh, actually, no, sorry. This is coming from Mammoth Biosciences in San Francisco. Uh, last author is Charles Chu. And we know that uh, testing is really important for COVID-19. You have to be able to identify patients who are positive for the infection so that, um, one, you know, you might be able to, to isolate them and distance them. But two, if you have the... Um, if you have the antibodies, and this isn't a story about antibodies, this is a story about viral detection, but if you have the antibodies, then you want to perhaps use that as a way to perhaps return to the workforce, right? That's kind of the hope. So mass testing is really important, not just for the virus, but also for the antibodies. And these folks are showing that you can use a special version of CRISPR-Cas12, you know, this is a variant of CRISPR-Cas9, to detect the virus really quickly. And they're able to kind of establish a diagnostic test where within 45 minutes, you can use CRISPR to identify uh, the virus in samples. And their, their positive rates, false positive, false negative rates were really good. Currently, of course, the gold standard is using a qPCR, RT-PCR, and that can take a few hours, up to a day to conduct. Um, but these guys are saying that you can do similar sort of testing, similar identification of the virus using CRISPR uh, in just about an hour. The whole thing is you can modify uh, the, the Cas nucleus to target whatever portion of the genome you want, right? So in this case, they modified it to identify the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as you might expect. And then there was basically like a, a system whereby a fluorescent molecule was activated if the virus was detected. Mm -hmm. So this is important. You know, it's uh, it's telling us another application of CRISPR. I think uh, this is somewhat similar to what some of the folks at the Broad Institute were doing with their whole Sherlock-based approach, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, where you're using CRISPR to identify um, viruses, right? Um, but this is, it's got a lot of translational potential. We need a lot of testing. We need way more testing if we're hoping to get to the, get around this. Yeah. I, this is a, it's a great time to be alive, right? In the midst of a pandemic. I know that that, that sounds like I'm being facetious, but it's actually true. A hundred years ago, there's a hundred million people dead right at this point. But nowadays we have the medical wherewithal to, to mitigate the cost, not saying that this is the Spanish flu in terms of its virulence or the, the target population that's succumbing, but just saying that we have so many more tools. And we talk about the medical tools in terms of treatment, vaccines and whatnot, but I, I, maybe underserved are the technical aspects. You know, there's all these creative, savvy engineering approaches and technical ap approaches to, to diagnosing this disease. And and uh, yeah, like you said, I remember when that initial uh, technology came out from the Broad. I remember being so impressed by so many aspects of it. It was a simple biological process that had been leveraged to give you this diagnostic uh, indicator with really small input. And it was like off the shelf or something. It was so easy. The idea was that you could disseminate it mass, and and it was modular. So yeah, I'm really impressed by all the savvy um, 
the creators out here. You know, people, we talk about creation, you don't really think about it in science. Science has, has kind of fallen out of that kind of imagination. But this really illustrates the, the imagination of science and how you can exploit these basic biological principles, tweak them to give you important uh, indicators of, uh, you know, in this case, whether or not people are sick. Yeah, it's uh, a little bit dark to say, but sometimes, you know, chaos can breed innovation, right? Mm, yes, yes. And this is certainly a chaotic time. Let's hope we come out of it with a lot of innovation and work forward. Um, I'm going to talk about what the, uh, the this diagnostic test is actually looking at. You know, again, we we're so worried about the sequelae of the disease that you know, there's a lot of research to be done just to understand what this thing is. And part of that there's been structures solved and, and the, 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 the virus in complex with the receptor, but there hasn't been really a deep understanding of the actual genomic structure. The, the, the structure of this thing, it's an RNA-based virus, so um, there's that, but the, the, it's not, you know, it isn't identical to a lot of other coronaviruses, obviously, and its effect. And Although a lot of uh, coronavirus have been studied, and this one is similar in that it's like en enveloped, uh, it's a enveloped virus with a positive sense single-stranded RNA genome. Um, it has a, a relatively large genome, 30 kb. That's relatively large relative to other coronaviruses uh, like SARS or MERS. Uh, it has 80% and 50% homology to those. 80% to SARS, 50% to MERS. Um, but as I said, uh, this, this and other coronavirus, they have these really relatively large genomes uh, amongst all the other virus families. And um, like other viruses on cell entry, the RNA is translated to produce these non-structural proteins. And those are the business end of this story. What are those non-structural proteins? They're encoded from all these cryptic open reading frames and overlapping frame shift. It's how you get all that like efficacy out of a relatively small genome of the virus is you have this, you know, multiplicity of, of using the same sequence. Um, but of course, also the viral genome is also used as template for replication to, to get into the cell and magnify itself. Uh, and that replication transcription mechanism, although it's been well studied in other coronavirus, it's not clear whether the general mechanism from those other coronaviruses applies to the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, so how did they unravel the uh, disease uh, figuratively and literally? They did it in a unique way, and this gave them a kind of dual insight. They did the classic sequencing by synthesis, um, or also known as SBS. It's known, you know, you do these little reads of fragments, right? You get a lot of accuracy, and you do massive coverage, and then you overlap all those fragments of sh relatively short read length, you know, 200 to 400 nucleotide read length. And there you get a glimpse of the whole genome, right? And it's very reliable, very high fidelity. They also use this other approach, okay? This is these nanopores. Um, and the nanopores have the advantage, although they're a little bit less faithful, uh, maybe a little more error prone in terms of, of, of fidelity, uh, they can give you these really long reads. Also, with the nanopore, you don't have to make a cDNA library, right? Like you do with all the sequencing by synthesis. So you can directly input the RNA. That allows you to get an idea of RNA modifications because these nanopores now are so sophisticated that they can actually read the uh, modification. So they had this dual method of looking at the structure of the SARS-2 genome. Uh, and they found that 
you know, this is very basic stuff and maybe your eyes are watering a little bit, but it's very important. In addition to showing that there's like this classic, uh, um, genomic, uh, and also these nine subgenomic RNAs that uniquely the SARS-CoV-2, it makes transcripts of unknown ORFs, uh, using fusion, deletion, or frame shift. So these are open reading frames that haven't been diagnosed with another coronavirus. And there's also at least 41, at least 41 RNA modification sites on the viral transcripts, the most frequent one being this AAGAA motif. Okay, so yeah, again, maybe a little eye-watering, but this is like virus that's doing unknown. It's having unknown effects, right? It's new to humans and it's killing a lot of us. And, and the first, I think, step, well, maybe not the first step. The first step would be great to just get a vaccine, but one mm. of the important steps, right, is just to understand what the life cycle of this thing is, understand what the components, what the moving parts are, because clearly that's got to be what's underlying the pathogenicity of this thing. Yeah, any mechanistic studies that we can do to further understand just how the virus affects the cells are, you know, they're definitely needed, right? One thing I actually was wondering about, maybe this is something you can help answer, when we're doing these mechanistic studies, like, do we have to take into consideration that there are a lot of different versions of this virus floating around? Or are we just assuming that they're close enough genomically that you know, we can pick and choose whichever one we want for, for our studies. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'm not a viral epidemiologist or anything like that. So I don't know. I'm speaking out of turn, but I have seen that in the news. A lot of people are worried about that. At least everyone's, I think in the back of their mind thinking and all the effort we put towards this, isn't it obviously just going to mutate? But I, I, my understanding of that is so superficial, but my gut tells me that, you know, immunity is more complex than that as well as, you know, understanding the structure of this will give you a lot of information of the minor variants uh, in the same way that your immune system can maybe tackle a, a, a different strain, although maybe not as effectively. So uh, I do see that there's a lot of concern around that, but, you know, every little, every little uh, brick we can put into the wall to, to keep this thing out of our lives, I think is gonna be really important. You know, I think everything definitely helps. And I think there is, you know, a significant portion of the virus that is conserved from strain to strain. So, mm. um, you know, every every single thing you can do helps, even if it's not the exact version of the virus that you might be infected by. Right. So next, we're going to move on to a couple of single cell papers back to back. I know you have one, too. That's pretty similar to the one I'm about to talk about. Uh, this one's titled SARS-CoV-2 receptor ACE2, we know ACE2 is the receptor for the virus, is an interferon-stimulated gene in human airway epithelial cells and is detected in specific cell subsets across tissues. This is a, um, a really huge number of authors on this paper. It's coming from the HCA Lung Biological Network and uh, coming from MIT. I believe the last author of the correspondence is Alex Shalek at MIT. And so this is kind of answering the question of what cells are likely to be targeted by the virus. Of course, we know that the lung is one of the initial sites of being of targeting for the virus because you're having lung problems, right? But also, it turns out that there are uh, cells in the nasal passages, intestine that are also more susceptible to infection. 
And the other thing that they found was that the expression of the ACE2 gene appears to be correlated with the activation of genes that are actually uh, known to be turned on by interferon, which is, of course, a protein that's important for an immune response and a response to, to viral infection. So they actually explored this a little bit further and did some experiments where they treated cells um, the cells that lined the airway with interferon, and they found that the treatment actually turned on the ACE2 gene. So it's kind of like a, a cyclical thing, right? It's telling you more about what cells are being infected. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this in, in the last story. ACE2 is pretty broadly expressed, you know, across the body. So uh, it's found in the heart, it's found in other portions of the body. But the way I maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way I like to think about it is, of course, your nasal passages and your lungs are the first things that are subjected to this virus. You breathe in the virus and there it's there, right? The virus is in your lungs and perhaps uh, other cells are being infected too, but the load, the viral load is most immediately present in your lung tissues. Um, so anything you can do to figure out what cells are actually being targeted uh, by this virus, I think is is a good thing. Yeah, I think this is, and I'm just going to jump right into mine because I think that this is, we're in a, in a phase now where there's a lot of, and I, this is no, I'm not paying short shrift to these, to these investigators, to their work, but that seems like there's a lot of bookkeeping. You know, there's a lot of things that we mm. think, there's a lot of things that we, we surmise and, but we don't know them. And until we know them, there's going to be a lot of people talking a bunch of nonsense at press briefings, okay? And they're going to be suggesting things that, you know, while they may be sensible from an intuitive standpoint, we don't have the evidence yet. So there's a lot of bookkeeping now uh, where we're just showing what we think we know. And this story that I'm about to say is from the same group, the Human Cell Atlas Lung Biological Network. Um, and yeah, like you said, the, 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 the nasal passages, that's where it comes. If you look at symptomatic patients, you do nasal swabs, you get a higher viral load than in the throat, right? Uh, and you see the same thing even in the asymptomatic patients. So like this is, this is one thing. The first point of entry is the nasal epithelium. And then, of course, later on, you get the throat and downstream the lung. So we know, like you said, that SARS is employing ACE2 as, as a receptor. There's some other uh, receptors that are maybe also involved, like TMPRSS2 uh, has been shown. The protease activity from that has shown to be necessary. So yeah, these authors are the same. It's a huge author list, and they're distributed around Europe in this case, mostly. Um, but it's the Human Cell Atlas Lung Biological Network, just like you. Uh, and they're looking to, to effectively see, uh, confirm what people have noted by immunohistochemistry, They've shown that the that ACE2 and TMPRSS2 are expressed uh, in allier epithelial cells in the upper airways too. But there's still some controversy for whatever reason. There's some data sets, you know, that have suggested that they're they're not these things aren't expressed in the lung. And I don't know. We can maybe uh, talk with uh, Dr. Penninger about some of the controversy about where ACE2 is actually. But you know, this is kind of putting it to bed, nailing the coffin. They did a bunch of single cell seek from healthy donors. I think this is the key difference in this story is this is from healthy donors. They were trying to get a kind of baseline and they showed, yeah, ACE2 is everywhere. It's in a lot of tissues. TMPRS is, is an even broader distribution. So it suggests that ACE2 maybe is a gatekeeper there. Um, but importantly, the nasal epithelial cells 
uh, and specifically these two cl uh, clusters of goblet cells and the cluster of ciliated cells. This is all single cell seq they did. They show that they had the highest expression amongst all the cells in the respiratory tree. So this again suggests that the nasal entry is really, that's it. If you could stop the virus at one place, it, it might be the nasal epithelium. It seems like that's where the, the virus gets the, the leverage. Um, but again, I'm gonna circle back and say that this was a kind of baseline study. I think there was kind of double dip here from the HCA Lung Biological Network where they showed here in healthy donors. And I think in your story, maybe they went a little bit deeper doing some more experimental stuff to see maybe what was going on in the context of disease. So uh, the, together, these are really robust and I think undeniable proof that ACE2 is not proof, but very strong evidence that ACE2 is the thing, all right? And ACE2 specifically in the nasal and, and, and you know, nasal epithelium, also the trachea, it's, it's the point of entry in all likelihood. Hey, we're talking with Mr. Ace 2 himself today, you know, Dr. Joseph Penninger. So I can't wait to, you know, pick his brain about Ace 2 and how it's important in the virus. But we know, like you mentioned, it seems like this is really the receptor that's um, doing the damage here, right? So um, we've got folks developing antisense oligos against Ace 2, you know, different antibodies against Ace 2. So that is the, the focal point here for sure. Yes, for sure. And the focal point of this interview that we're about to have with Joe Penny is about how he got his thing out in this accelerated review, this preprint about ACE2 and using organoids. And I think, you know, we have the special, special benefit of having a co-host on this show who pulls his weight. So we're doing a little kind of mini interview here. I think this is an opportunity for Arun to share a story that he's the lead on coming out of the Svensson lab. But it's not just the science here that I think is interesting, but it's a little insight that maybe uh, Dr. Panger can reinforce about how science review is happening, how people are doing work. How do you respond to something like this in the acute phase uh, when everybody's looking at it? Arun, tell us about your story you just posted on BioArchive. Yeah, for sure. So we were just talking right now about cells that are possibly being infected by this virus, right? And how ACE2 is really important for the infection. You know, I'm going to preface all this by saying that, yeah, of course, we know that there's infection in the nasal uh, passages and the lung. That's kind of where these patients are. Uh, these patients are experiencing lung problems, right? But there's an increasing number of people who are also experiencing some cardiac issues, too. So uh, arrhythmias, viral myocarditis or viral inflammation of the heart, you know, these things that are, are popping up um, for people who have not only respiratory problems, but also cardiac problems. And so the thought is, if the heart is being infected, is it a primary or a secondary effect, right? Primary meaning the cells of the heart are actually directly being targeted by the virus. And through like some of these single cell studies, we're, we're seeing that the cardiomyocytes, the parasites, the endothelial cells, um, different structural components in the heart do express ACE2. But of course, it's tough to do, um, you know, cardiac biopsies, right? It's really tough to obtain uh, a heart sample from obviously from somebody who's who's alive because that's somewhat of an invasive procedure. Um, but ideally, you would also want it from postmortem samples too. 
So we don't know as much about how the cardiomyocytes are being directly infected by this virus, right? And so that's some, a question that we want to answer. And if you listen, listen to the podcast, you know that my favorite cell type is the iPS-derived cardiomyocyte, right? So it just so happened that, one, I had some leftover iPS cardiomyocytes sitting around in the incubator uh, from, uh, from a couple of different cell lines. And two, we happen to have a very good collaborator nearby here at UCLA, Dr. Arumugaswamy. He's a virologist. He actually had access to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we put two and two together and we decided to basically infect our iPS cardiomyocytes with the SARS-CoV-2 virus as a model to see if human cardiomyocytes might be susceptible to infection. And um, yeah, so we uploaded this paper a couple of days ago. We still have some work to do and we're in the process of kind of wrapping things up right now. Um, but right now we're kind of able to show that at least in this model system, human iPSC cardiomyocytes myocytes are susceptible to infection by the virus. Um, we were able to confirm using immunofluorescence, the viral particles are actually localizing to the perinuclear regions of the cells. Um, it looks like they are accumulating at the ribosome, so they're being actively produced. So it does seem like, at least in these pseudocardiomyocytes, we, we harp on this point, right? These aren't perfect replicates of the human adult cardiomyocytes. Uh, they are a model, but at least in these iPS cardiomyocytes, which are somewhat immature, they are susceptible to infection by the virus. And they are expressing ACE2 at, at a low level, um, but that's probably why they are susceptible to infection. So we've got some some more work um, in, in the wings. We're doing some transcriptomic analysis as well, but hopefully it's useful data. And that's part of the reason why we wanted to upload this to BioArchive, right? We wanted to get this out there. Hopefully this is useful information for the community to use. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is something that a lot of people in the COVID-19 field are doing. They're uploading their biology to preprint servers like BioArchive as quickly as possible. And for me personally, I think that's the way to go. You need as much data, as much information as you can to help you know, fight this virus. Yeah, this goes to congratulations, by the way. It's great work. Uh, Thanks, man. I really look up to you. I wish I were young again <laughs> because it's clear that uh, this is a time to be doing great stuff in stem cell science. Um, but, you know, this goes back to the, the, the first story I talked about with the QT interval, you know, the observation that you see in patients, it's directly related. Yeah. So like, this is like this, I, although you allude to these cells not being the perfect model, it's something, it's something, and it's something tangible, whereas we can mm. just observe in patients and throw stuff at them and see what happens. It's never going to be a controlled experiment. So you're giving us that insight. The question I have for you, though, mm. is that you posted this in the archive. I'm sure you're going to send it out for review. But in these days where like, there's so much to learn, there's so much knowledge to be gained. Um, and we know so little. So anything, like we keep saying it, anything you could do, any brick in the wall, get it out. But it, with a story like this, like you, there's so much you could do. You could have 12 figures, you know, if you really were to take this to something close to completion. Where, did, where, what's enough? Like, do you do the seek? Do you do, or do you have to take it to like different patients and infect with the virus and give a potential treatment? What's your like goalpost with this project in terms of what do you think is a sufficient threshold that that this should, you know, be sent for? review, not just posted to share, but be critically reviewed and published. 
You know, I don't think there's a right answer to that. I really don't. I think it depends on your perspective. For us personally, we just thought this was useful data and we just wanted to get it out there. Um, and just there's a there's a speed at which this field is moving, right? We have to kind of, you know, uh, kind of establish this and send it out for review as quickly as possible. I know for, I've got a, another friend who's actually kind of in a similar situation. He's doing some work that's not related to SARS-CoV-2, but his thought is like, oh, should I post this to BioArchive? Uh, is this ready for posting yet? Because one thought is like, oh, what if you get scooped or something by posting something on BioArchive? I think there was some sort of analysis that showed that the percentage chance of you actually getting scooped by posting on a preprint server is somewhat low, okay? Mm. Um, look, I'm... I understand that there are other people who are doing the same thing. This is a really hot field. I think as much data as you can get, you know, the better, right? If those other folks are posting something on BioArchive or if something is published in an actual peer-reviewed journal you know, tomorrow, I'm all for that. I think this is something that you need for, uh, for progressing the, the data in, in a time like this. Everything helps. Yeah, there's a glut of data and uh, it's out there. It's dr it's trickling out, at least, these early stories. I mean, this might all be old news by the time you hear it, but uh, maybe we'll come out with another COVID roundup to keep you current. Probably not necessary, but this has been, I think, important for us to just, you know, sink our teeth into what the COVID literature and news is for us. Okay, so maybe it's a selfish endeavor, but we hope you guys enjoy it and you're definitely going to enjoy what's coming up our interview with Dr. Penning, or the kids call him Joe Penny. Maybe not the kids. My kids are going to start <laughs> calling him Joe Penny. But first, before we get to that, I have a message from Stem Cell. Learn about the features that make air-liquid interface cultures a physiologically relevant model system for in vitro infection studies and how researchers are using them to study a variety of viruses, including the novel coronavirus, at www.stemcell.com slash COVID dash and dash A-L-I. All right, guys, it's my special pleasure for this in-between episode to welcome back to the show a friend of the podcast, Dr. Joseph Penninger from University of British Columbia. He's the director of Life Science Institute at the University of British Columbia also the Canada 150 Chair in Functional Genetics, founding director at the Institute for Molecular Biotechnology of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. That's in Vienna, Austria, where Dr. Penninger happens to be stuck right now because of the quarantine. They wouldn't let him back into Canada, this poor guy. Anyway, Dr. Penninger's lab uses a variety of tools to uncover the fundamental mechanisms involved in human disease. He's been studying the protein ACE2 for nearly two decades having linked the protein as being the key receptor for SARS, and now for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's COVID-19. His team has identified a trial drug that can significantly block early stages of COVID-19 in human blood vessel and kidney organoids. Dr. Penninger, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, great to have me back on your show. And yeah, I got stuck in Vienna because I'm not a Canadian citizen and all the borders came down. So, so I actually was not allowed to get back to my workplace. <laughs> well, you're stuck there, but I'll tell you, it's a, it's a blessing for us because you got some time on your hands. I just have to say, there's a talk I give about this podcast to young people in science. 
And I always, there's 10 slides, 10 talks, 10 conversations that I've had with scientists. And I introduce you, the title of the slide that you're on is Scientists Are Cool. Uh, and that's something I've learned by talking to you. So it's really a delight. You can really talk to the audience. We got a young audience here, also an old audience. And you're a cool guy who's got some really cool science. So I'm not going to waste any more time introducing you. Arun, kick it off, will you? All right, let's do it. So let's, yeah, let's dive right into it. Dr. Penninger, we have to talk to you about your recent study that was published as a preprint in Cell that actually shows that a soluble human ACE2 can inhibit coronavirus infection in, in engineered human tissues. And it seems like this was a pretty collaborative effort between folks at different institutions worldwide, like Karolinska, Stem Cell Technologies, and UBC. So feel free to talk a little bit about this work. So how were you able to coordinate such a worldwide effort so quickly after the outbreak of the virus? And what do you envision as the next step for a potential COVID-19 treatment using this approach? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I've been actually working on ACE2 for a long, long time. So we co-discovered it in the early 2000s. And uh, <clears throat> I also had been working on SARS. So when the sequence came out for the virus causing COVID-19, it became very, very clear <clears throat> that ACE2 must be the receptor also for the new virus. And at this time, funny enough, I was at the meeting in Barcelona, early February, a meeting on stem cells and, and tissue engineering and the biophysics of tissue engineering. Uh, and it was becoming coming quite clear ACE2 is the receptor. And I'd been working with these guys in Stockholm at Karolinska on virus infections. Uh, we did with them uh, Zika infection, Ebola infection, Marburg virus infection, so Ali Mirazimi, they're running basically the, the super high security lab for, for viruses and bacteria for, the, for Northern Europe. <clears throat> so I knew this and Ali and I wanted to do something. And I was in this meeting in Barcelona and of course sitting in front of all these people engineering tissues and of course, it was the obvious to talk to some people and say, hey, why don't we all get together? Uh, let's engineer some tissues. Uh, you know, let's send them to Stockholm for infections. And so I talked to Nuria Montserrat, who had engineered very special kidney organoids. I talked to stem cell technologies who helped us uh, engineering some, some actually gut organoids, uh, which we have not in our paper, but we can also infect them. And of course, blood vessel organoids, which I had developed um, so, so within a few days, actually, I put together a team of tissue engineers, stem cell people, uh, people who actually have the, had the virus. So we had the first Swedish virus isolate and, and we could infect them. So, so this is how it happened. Yeah. In a meeting, talking to people. So. Yeah, it all starts at meetings. That's why we go to them. But uh, clearly, yeah, this is a, a long time coming. It seems like you said it was over a decade ago that you started working on this. So you were well poised to capitalize on your skill set. Um, but also, I mean, you've had a lot of experience publishing in really high impact journals and you're no stranger to kind of pivoting your technical skill set to exploit the newest technologies because that's what the editors like to see, right? They like to see the new tech, maybe addressing an old problem, maybe addressing a new problem, but the new tech is really what drives the interest, right? Uh, so you know what it's like to work on something that's quote unquote hot. But uh, the COVID thing, by comparison, is like molten lava. So this is a new experience for everybody. Can you give us a peek into the review process for this? I mean, you alluded to how quickly you were able to assemble the team, but it seems like that was a long time coming. 
But even so, with all those things in place, the review process for this was really accelerated. Um, tell us about that. And are, are there elements of the process you think of that accelerated process that should be conserved, applied generally to all review? Or do you think this is a real special case? Uh, it, it's a very special case, but what happened, it's probably the fastest paper I ever published in my life. <laughs> so uh, we started uh, probably five weeks before we submitted the paper to sell. So, you know, I never had in my life a five week uh, work, which resulted in a sell paper. <laughs> um, but of course, we addressed a really important question. Is this just a lung disease or can the virus infect other tissues directly? Uh, when we started it, it was very unclear. Now it became obvious that this is happening. So the COVID-19 is not the lung disease, but affects many, many tissues. So we we contacted Cell. They, of course, like everybody else, was very interested in, in <clears throat> top-notch technology papers addressing COVID-19. And uh, we submitted it fast, and then we actually had a very good peer review quite fast. Uh, took around 10 days, 14 days to address the issues of the referees, and then they put it online very fast. So, so I think it was, was a very good process. But I, I'm also sure uh, it's a unique unique setup and unique time. Actually, on the same day when our paper was accepted, I had a second paper accepted in cell on something totally different. Mm. And on this paper, we worked for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and probably now, after 10 years, nobody will care because probably nobody will read it because everybody reads COVID-19 papers. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> oh, wow. If only the turnaround could always be that quick, right? So as you've mentioned, uh, you've been working on this for a while now, right? So you mentioned you've been working on ACE2 for, for a long time and also the, the virus as well. And understandably, the COVID-19 has attracted a lot of interest in the community, like we were just talking about, right? And a lot of labs are starting to shift whatever they're doing towards coronavirus research. And part of it has to do with funding, right? There's a lot of COVID-centric funding opportunities. But some people are saying that it's actually not a great idea for labs not focused in virology or, you know, uh, ACE2 to actually shift their focus overnight to exclusively COVID-19 work. And I guess the fear is that like non-experts in the field might be working on something that they, they're not entirely, entirely knowledgeable about, right? But certainly there's a lot to learn about the pathophysiology of the virus. And I think, you know, you need that kind of diverse, you know, group of people looking at the virus, right? So what do you think about this mass shift in the non-virology research community to actually doing COVID-19 work? I, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, in the early 2000s, we published the first paper on ACE2, the knockout mouse, and we published this in, I think, 2002 in Nature, and then had some follow-up papers. You know, I, I used to be Mr. ACE2, and then, of course, nobody cared anymore because ACE2 disappeared. Um, it, well, it didn't disappear. SARS disappeared. You know, it was a nice discovery. It was very nice. Uh, you know, but for 10 years, nobody really cared. And now probably ACE2 has become, within the short time, most likely the most researched protein on the planet. Mm -hmm. you know, 
essentially everybody jumped on it from MIT and Harvard and every AI company predicting better binding uh, to companies. You know, <clears throat> every time I get an advertisement from a you know, some supply company, they have ELISAs and antibody against ACE2. It's stunning what happened from nearly zero interest in what we had been doing to to a global exercise. Well, literally everybody jumped on it. Of course, not only ACE2, but other aspects of the disease, of disease pathogenesis, other aspects of the virus, uh, what it binds to. <clears throat> but of course, ACE2 has become the center fold uh, the virus binding to it. <clears throat> so this was really interesting. And I actually get emails every day, like 20 emails from people who have these ideas how to block it. Mm. And they come from, I don't know, plant engineering <clears throat> from Africa. Hmm. And, uh, you know, one person wrote to me, there's a particular herb which could treat the disease, but you have to cook it in a particular <laughs> copper. <laughs> <laughs> You know, wow. this is what we get. It's unbelievable. <clears throat> and every company seems to work on this, and every company has a solution for it from, you know, small molecules to little peptide to RNAi. <clears throat> it, it's, it's, I am totally mind boggled, but uh, 95% of it is most likely total nonsense. <clears throat> but since such a massive amount of clever people working on this, uh, I'm actually very hopeful that we, something really interesting will come out. And it's actually nice, exactly as you said, that people from different fields jump in, clever people from different fields, because they might actually bring to the topic something we've never been thinking about. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's like the Wild West, uh, nothing against the Wild West. So it's, like <laughs> a, you know, it's like a gold rush. It's like yeah. the, the Yukon gold rush. Everybody's jumping in. It certainly has to do with funding. It also has to do that most institutions have closed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we had to close our institute in Vancouver. The only people who are allowed to work are actually people working in COVID-19. Mm. So, so that's also basically all the manpower, all the projects have, are focusing on, on one topic. And I, I, this might have become, I mean, if you think about this, probably the, the biggest uh, experiment on the planet in the history of, of our planet, uh, you know, where basically nearly all institutions work on one mm. singular issue. Hmm. Yeah, there's a, it's a gold rush. I mean, it's a rush. It's a rush for sure. Uh, and I think it totally makes sense. A lot of these scientists, you know, they just want to do, I think all scientists want to do something that will be used to help people and to treat yes. disease. I mean, that's like the dream. That's my personal dream. I think a lot of scientists share that, just to have one thing that's used in patients. So I get it. But I mean, you guys alluded to it. You said it straight out. That one aspect of this is that you have all these really smart people, varied expertise, diverse approaches. Um, and there's got to be a few solutions, right? There's got to be you know, it's not one silver bullet. There's got to be a few different ways that we can tackle this effectively. Uh, but, you know, in order to vet those, in order to figure out what's going to work, we need to, you know, assign massive resources, you know, from the money, the people, the patients, the time, mm -hmm. the risk, the urgency generally that we're all feeling, you know, getting the, the, these drugs through trials is going to take a monumental effort. Do you think we have to like pick our horse, so to speak? We have to, you know, commit to one or a few 
uh, options and put all our weight behind that? And and if, if so, what do you think are going to be the the criteria that ultimately dictate which solutions we get behind? Uh, yeah, first we need multiple solutions. You know, we need testing solutions. Maybe the testing solutions come from semiconductor research, from sensor research. <clears throat> People actually talk to me, you know, if we could stick ACE2 on some semiconductors, mm-hmm. uh, you cuff on it, <clears throat> you know, there's an le- electrical signal. You know, if you have tests where you go to a restaurant and 10 seconds later, you know, you have the virus or not. <clears throat> uh, I'm sure this is part of the solution. Uh, the solutions of making vaccines. I think there are at least 80 companies making vaccines now. Uh, there are at least 200 research groups I'm aware of making vaccines. And of course, there we could really ask the question, what's really useful, what's, what's nonsense? Uh, should we put our money on five or six approaches instead of 200? Um, just the idea, you know, <clears throat> there won't be enough people on the planet to test 200 mm. different approaches. And, and, you know, will New York use a different vaccine than, than San Francisco and the Europeans and the Chinese? Um, uh, <clears throat> to be honest, I, I would have hoped in this scenario <clears throat> uh, that the WHO would, would take a lead and, you know, focus the efforts in vaccine development <clears throat> uh, because now it's become uh, completely wild and everybody does it and everybody has their own ideas how to do this. Uh, again, how do we test it? How do we put the money in just to build uh, factories to, to make uh, vaccines cost half a billion? So mm. uh, then, of course, the efforts of blocking ACE2, so the virus cannot enter us anymore, the efforts to block how the virus replicates uh, and the many efforts how to block the inflammation which ensues. So, so COVID-19 is really not <clears throat> the singular disease. It's, it's various stages of the virus exploding, uh, uh, making the first disease, <clears throat> then the immune system kicking in. So there will not be a single solution. <clears throat> there will not be a single magic bullet. There will be not a single wonder drug, but eventually we will come up with combinations of treatment in early stages, mid-stages, uh, severe stages. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> yeah, we have to make uh, and put a lot of efforts onto this virus because that's what the disease tells us. It, it's not even pneumonia. Today, actually, a paper came out, which was really interesting because it follows our study we published in Cell that one can infect blood vessel organoids. Uh, today, a paper came out that um, uh, COVID-19 might be actually uh, a, a systemic uh, infection of endothelial cells mm. in patients who have died of the disease where they actually find the virus in the endothelium. So, so there's lots to learn. And of course, many efforts we have to throw at it. Definitely lots to learn. So Dr. Penninger, you're a stem cell biologist at your core and you've joined us on the podcast previously, right? Um, so you mentioned that most of your lab in, in Vancouver is closed and unless you're working on COVID-19 research, you're not really allowed to go into the lab. And I think a lot of stem cell labs and wet labs around the world kind of have that same situation, right? A lot of stem cell scientists are having to work from home, but they still wanna have a sense of purpose even though they can't really do experiments, right? So for stem cell biologists who spend so much time in the cell culture hood doing experiments, working from home can be pretty tough. So in your opinion, what can stem cell biologists working from home do to kind of stay productive, even though they're not able to start new experiments from the lab? 
Oh, oh, they can do a lot. Uh, you know, read the literature of the last five years, which I <laughs> love to do, you know, with all our craziness of running around and being busy with whatever we are busy with. Uh, it's actually nice to calm down, sometimes slow down, and actually read the literature again. So I think that's useful. Um, I know many actually reached out and helping developing tests, you know, using the technologies that they've developed to, to have better tests for the virus. For instance, I'm seeing this in, in Vienna now. <clears throat> they developed a super cool new tester that will implement in the Institute. <clears throat> so I think there are many ways one can contribute. <clears throat> uh, of course, uh, you know, with our intellects and forums and uh, talk to each other, bring in ideas and so on. Yeah, it's an opportunity. I like to. Th I'm trying to tell myself this is an opportunity, although I'm, I'm you know, borderline suicidal between my kids <laughs> and stuck at home and not being able to work. But hey, I got the podcast, right? It's keeping me going. The, 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 you guys said it though. You know, this this, this is a time, an opportunity. Let's say I just said. Um, uh, but you know, it's it's that forced pause. You could read the literature. But a lot of what we're doing is we're talking about COVID. I mean, let's be honest, every conversation we have, it's about COVID. Um, and I think a part of that whole cultural conversation is kind of reconciling this new world, understanding what the world looks like post-COVID. And part of that is recalibrating everything, every profession. It's like, okay, I got to rethink how I do that. If I'm like, you know, I work in Hollywood, I'm a makeup person. You got to rethink all that, everything probably. Not everything, most things. So there's a you got to recalibrate. You got to reframe your rationale. You got to reframe the protocols. You got to reframe everything. And and we were talking about it. You're saying how how there's a hundred different vaccines, you know, something like that coming out. And maybe we need to kind of reframe the way we do science. Maybe the WHO needs to step in and centralize all that data so that we can have a one-to-one -one comparison of the inputs and say, this vaccine candidate is better than that candidate. Who knows? But we got to rethink a lot of things, right? How do you, how do you, you know, think this is going to change science in a major and lasting way, if at all? Or do you think things will just revert to the norm once we lift the restrictions? Uh, yeah, I actually hope that it will change. Uh, you know, we had this ultra competitive, uh, uh, you know, social construct of doing science. You know, have to publish good journals and have a career, all this total nonsense. So I really hope we get back to a way of, you know, where collaboration counts, where working together counts, where sharing data actually counts instead of, you know, I, I'm the first one and, and this is what counts for our careers. So, so I'm actually completely on your side. So I, I think we have to reevaluate what we're actually doing and how we do it. Uh, and, and, you know, my wish would be that we, we uh, work much more together. We're much more collaborative again. Um, we we learn from each other and not not just for science for many other aspects of life uh, in, uh, you know I, I like to on the side i like to start companies <clears throat> and last year we started a new company and we had this super cool technology uh, how to actually find weak spots of viruses <clears throat> you know we can actually find uh, achilles heels of viruses nobody else can find so half a year ago, I would go to investors and ask them, you know, if they would give us some money because this is really cool. We could find the next generation of antivirals. <clears throat> 
they all threw me out of their offices. Hmm. You know, there's no money to be made. Uh, let's work on the next cancer, you know, because this is, we can make more money. We can calculate how many people get this. There's a market analysis of health. Hmm. When I listen to these talks, then I, you know, I could nearly show up because, you know, it's, it's human health. It's people, you know, we are not part of a market analysis of people from the NASDAQ. I mean, seriously. <laughs> And so, you know, we had actually technologies and nobody financed it because they thought they couldn't make any buck out of it. Mm. So, so I really hope that things like this also change, that our world, you know, shows a little more solidarity, that we actually do things <clears throat> which doesn't make people who are already very rich, even more rich, uh, you know, help all of us. So <clears throat> it's my wish, which is coming out of this. Do you, do you think, as you said, you would like to come back to a time where we're working together again? And I have to say, I mean, you're, you're still a young man. You're not that much older than me, but I can only remember it ever being super competitive. But do, do you, was there a time in your, when, you're, when you were starting out that you think it was more collaborative? And what changed? Was it the, the market? Was it the money thing that, that you're alluding to that kind of tainted the collaborative effort? I, I actually, when I started out, I was super competitive. I mean, I still am, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be in my position. It's competitive in a way to, you know, to move things forward. <clears throat> Not competitive in a way that, you know, I can only move forward if I screw somebody else. Mm. Uh, you know, this is not what I understand and the competition. But when I work, you know, when I started, I also had this idea, it's my new idea, I cannot tell anybody mm. because if I tell people too early, they might steal what I'm doing. <clears throat> and once I had the pleasure actually to run into Oliver's missus at dinner with, you know, Oliver, mm. who won the Nobel Prize for making knockout mass, mm. <clears throat> homologous recombination and bringing it together with stem cells. And we, did, we discussed really this topic, me as a young researcher just starting out and trying to make my way into the into the big game. <clears throat> and um, so I asked Oliver how this is, and he said, you know, if you talk to 10 people, two people will steal your idea, <clears throat> but eight people might give you a much better idea. <laughs> so, so there's actually no choice. Talk to people, work with them, <clears throat> know that, you know, they might they met some assholes out there who <laughs> might take your stuff. <clears throat> but I think most of us are quite reasonable and want to work together. And then if you tell me something and you're all honest and frank about this, I might give you a good idea and good suggestion. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, you know, we get, we advance much better together. <clears throat> so this, I think, was my defining moment where, where I realized <clears throat> it's okay to be competitive. We all have to be competitive to a certain extent. Uh, <clears throat> if it doesn't uh, hurt others, uh, you know, <clears throat> I had, I, after this, I waited for half a year for other people to catch up with our work <clears throat> to publish back to back because I thought sometimes it's more important uh, not to be the first one, but to make sure it's real. You know, if another group comes up with the same solution. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so I guess kind of on that topic of competition versus collaboration, I think um, something recently that's been happening 
to facilitate collaboration is people have been posting their manuscripts on preprint servers, right? Like either a cell press preprint server or bioarchive. And I think even your manuscript was on a preprint server um, before publication. Do you think ultimately that's that's a, a positive effort in, in the scientific field? And do you think that's something that's going to carry on? Uh, on, honestly, I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe I'm too old-fashioned for this. I'm not totally sold on it, uh, to be honest. Uh, but when I talk to young researchers in my institute, they really like this and they really believe that it's the future. So maybe I'm just too old-fashioned and too growing too old to understand it. <clears throat> it's certainly, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will be the future because many more people are using it and. Uh, I'm not totally convinced by it. <clears throat> because, of course, there are lots of things which are posted, which are not peer-reviewed. Yeah. And I can tell you from COVID-19 uh, research and ACE2 research, <clears throat> you know, something I really understand. There are <clears throat> lots of paper preprints, you know, where people claim ACE2 is actually not expressed in the lungs. We cannot explain any of the disease, <clears throat> you know, having a bad antibody, but because of COVID-19, this you know, creates a lot of media and all of a sudden there's this whole, you know, online Twitter exchange, uh, you know, ACE2 cannot be important because somebody in an uncontrolled fashion published some nonsense. And so, so that's what I mean. Uh, uh, you know, we have to always take this uh, with a grain of salt <clears throat> in particular. And I realize this now with COVID-19 research, <clears throat> you know, the research and we all know this depends on good reagents. Uh, and we all know there are bad antibodies out there, there are bad reagents out there, you know, but with COVID-19, anything you could, for the last two months, you could publish anything. Mm -hmm. uh, if there was ACE2 or SARS virus or, you know, COVID-19 on the title of your paper. So, <clears throat> so at the end, we still need peer review, I believe, <clears throat> to make sure it has been done properly. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have to strike that right balance. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, not too long long ago, you moved to Vancouver from Austria, right? So you're heading the Life Sciences Institute at UBC. And you've been back in Canada for a little while now, although, you know, I think now you're back in Austria, right? Since, uh, because of this whole situation. Um, so you're a world traveler and you're kind of a new resident of British Columbia. So how would you evaluate how the government and the people of Vancouver have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic? And how would you compare that response back home in Austria? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I might step on some people's toes now here, which is probably <laughs> why you ask me this question. <laughs> I, you know, I actually was here when the whole COVID-19 exploded in northern Italy. Uh, and you probably, I don't know if you know why it actually happened in northern Italy, because the fashion industry so the fashion industry has lots of connections to China. In northern Italy, there are around half a million Chinese actually working for the fashion industry, you know, making shirts and so on. Hmm. So in all the global pandemic scenarios for Europe, northern Italy was basically always the first place where it would strike. Hmm. Uh, and of course, there were soccer games, Champions League. Uh, there's this famous soccer game of Atalanta Bergamo in the Champions League playing against Valencia, which was played in Milan. And I think half of the Valencia team was infected. <clears throat> so this is how it came from Italy to Spain, how it hit actually Spain and, of course, France through the fashion industry. And then it hit Austria. Uh, you know, people going skiing, the Italians coming skiing. Uh, in, in Switzerland, I think there are two 
200,000 Italians who come over the border every day to work there. So this is basically how it spread. And in the Austrian ski resort, you know, people partying in the evening uh, in close range. Uh, Austria basically infected all of Germany in Northern Europe. So of course, not all of it, you know, this guy's going skiing and in the evening, you know, have the big parties on the ski resorts. And I think probably everybody in Iceland was in the same place in the same bar in, in Austria who got the disease at the end of the day. So this was uh, quite interesting to see. Now, having seen this, I actually was in, in Austria, and it was already full-blown in Italy. So the Austrians still, you know, kind of, it kind of ignored it. This cannot happen to us. So I still remember I went to go to a museum. I saw an exhibition. I went to the restaurant. There were already many deaths in Italy. <clears throat> So I think that's probably our human nature to ignore things. A week later, the Austrian government shut down the entire country, mm-hmm. police on the street. <clears throat> you know, we, nobody was allowed to go out anymore. <clears throat> it was really, really interesting to see this from going to a museum to, you know, being controlled by the police. And actually, you can get fined. So if you're too close to somebody else, you could get fined for 500 euros, uh, mm-hmm. things like this. <clears throat> Um, but now Austria is the first country, I don't know if you know, which is opening again. Mm. So since two days, the small shops are open. Uh, actually, today, our institute, the, the old institute that started and founded, uh, opened again. Uh, next week, the shopping malls open again. So mid of May, the hotels will open again. <clears throat> so everybody of the world is actually looking at us. Mm. Uh, so uh, at, at the end, the Austrians reacted late, but then they reacted very fearful. <clears throat> and at the end, we have 10,000 cases, uh, very few deaths. So we're probably one of the best countries which went through this. Uh, now to Canada. <clears throat> Because I lived through this and, you know, told the Canadians, uh, this is not the harmless virus, take this really serious. <clears throat> and, you know, like the Austrians, they completely ignored it. Uh, this cannot happen to us. It's no problem. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I could, this, this was not a good uh, experience, I have to say. <clears throat> and also the new for instance, that the way to do this is we have to develop tests, early testing. We have to test lots of people. Uh, uh, we had people in, in, you know, I know who who had typical symptoms, wanted to get tested three times, could not get tested, were sent home. Uh, so, so honestly, uh, what I know, I was not particularly convinced that the response in Canada was at an appropriate level. Of course, in retrospect, we're always more, you know, it's always easy to criticize. Too. But of course, they could have learned from the others. Having said this, we have not learned from the Italians and we did probably the same mistake. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've heard the expression, darned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm hoping we're not damned, but uh, I think there's light. I think we're getting near the end, and uh, I hope the trends continue on a downward trajectory. Um, Just to close out here, I want to ask you what's next. I mean, this was a big story, but you bookended it well there when you said you had a story that was published essentially the same week or day in the same journal, but it was in review for a decade. So, I mean, this is a big story, obviously the preprint, I mean, 
Um, but unlike that decade long review story, which languishes for so long that you've kind of, you've, you've fleshed it out and you have next steps there. Like you've already moved on a lot of times by the time a paper is published and you're exploiting with the gains from that paper and applying them already in the next step. But here the paper's out, you just started working on the thing. I mean, you've been working on it forever, but you just pretty much picked up this COVID thing and it's published. What do you do now? I mean, there's no languishing. You're, you're the decks are clear, and you got to move in. You talked, move on. You talked about like the vasculitis thing in the in the blood vessel, uh, how the centrality of the blood vessel endothelium to the disease is that is that where you go, or do you just pivot to something else altogether? You got some on the back burner that you bring back to the front. Tell us what's next. Uh, so the the next step. So for, for instance, we are making now a fully humanized ACE2 knockout mouse. Uh, so since we had made the first ACE2 knockout mouse and we have ACE2 flocks mice, so we are now getting a mouse from China, which is human ACE2 under the endogenous mouse ACE2 promoter. So we will cross them together to have really a mouse model with human ACE2 because it seems the virus only needs human ACE2 to enter the cell and then it wrecks havoc. And of course, then we can do a lot of experiments. So of course, we'll share this mice with everybody who wants them. <clears throat> then we can do life infections. Uh, we can really study the immune system, therapies, vaccines <clears throat> in the animal model, which we can manipulate, really study, you know, how immune cells, T cells, B cells, <clears throat> innate immune cells might be important, how the disease really develops, uh, what we can do against it. So that's one thing we are doing. Of course, this is not novel. Many others are doing. I know the NIH is doing this and many others. So. <clears throat> But we will have have the possibilities, and of course, I will share it with everybody. Uh, in Vancouver, we have actually a particular level three laboratory where we can do mouse work with the live virus. Uh, the same we are doing in Stockholm at the Karolinska Institute, so they have this high security lab, which is of course also very important because at the end, we want to have a real life virus infection. <laughs> the other thing which really interests me, uh, which we are doing in our group now, is. <clears throat> After we published our organoid paper, I'm aware of at least 100 other groups who do exactly the same now. <clears throat> so, you know, from the Harvard guys. <clears throat> and of course, they have a real power and lots of money. <clears throat> so how do we su survive in a competitive field like this where everybody does the same? So what we're actually doing, we, we are moving on to the next step. We are developing blood vessel organoids under diabetic conditions, which we published last year. <clears throat> uh, and also kidney organoids under diabetic conditions because diabetics have much worse disease. And so, you know, model in, you know, stem cell derived organoids, uh, diabetes, uh, uh, you know, disease conditions, and then see at the molecular level how this would actually affect why people who have diabetes get worse disease. Maybe the virus binds more. Uh, you know, so that's what we're really doing right at the moment. Uh, you know, look at single cells, how they get infected, and what happens to the next cell beside it. So to gain some information, which of course many other people are doing at the moment. Uh, where I really spend a lot of time now is uh, to help out in, in setting up a clinical trial because the molecule we used in our paper has actually already been tested in 89 humans. Uh, this all comes back to my old work in SARS infection in ACE2, and we could explain why the SARS virus became a killer virus. 
because it binds to ACE2 and ACE2 gets downregulated and ACE2 is a protective factor for many, many tissues. And that's exactly what we see. ACE2 is in the gut, in the kidney, in, in the heart, in the lung, in the nose. So you can explain all the distribution. And this virus is a real crappy virus because it hit a molecule and shuts it down, which normally protects us. So based on this, we developed this medicine. Uh, many people got it already, healthy volunteers and phase two uh, trials for people with lung disease. Uh, and so we're actually setting up now a clinical study, a very carefully uh, uh, set up study, a placebo control, double-blinded, so not some fast shot, you know, 10 patients and it works. And then the president says this is the next wonder <laughs> drug. So, because at the end of the day, we need to know if it works or doesn't work. It's totally useless to come up with anecdotes, uh, you know, even if it works, but it doesn't help anybody. So that's what we are doing and have, and have been doing. Um, you know, talk to people, uh, advise the Austrian government, uh, talk to ministers, funding agencies to actually give us money to do the clinical study uh, and also help a little bit setting it up. So I've been in contact with uh, intensive care physicians from China, from North America, from Europe. Uh, the trial has been now accepted. So uh, maybe even today or tomorrow, the first patient will be treated in in Austria, in Germany, and in Denmark. Wow. And we might uh, open additional sites probably next week in the UK and in Spain. And so, so that's how I spend my time. And I have to say, besides you know doing basic research, which I love, and this is where I come from, this is a completely different ball game. <clears throat> you know you talking about patients, uh, patients who are very sick, uh, uh, you know, exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria, who can be treated, who should not be treated. Uh, so, so I'm actually learning a lot. And, and sometimes when we have this vision as scientists, this should work the best here and there. there of course, the realities of clinics, of clinicians <clears throat> taking care of people who are dying, uh, you know, they cannot, you know, to centrifuge a tube is not their priority. <clears throat> so they have to save lives. And hmm. <clears throat> so that's what I've been doing. And, and from basically 7am in the morning to 2am the next day for the last two months. Wow. So guys, what are you doing during your quarantine? I know Arun is learning the guitar. <laughs> I'm growing out my afro. But uh, Joe P, he's doing all that people. So you got to measure up, you know, pick a craft or something. You got to have something to show for it. Dr. Penninger, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, I hope we can have you back again and before a year, because, you know, it was a year this month, actually, you were with us last. You've had about 20 papers since then, made a lot of big strides. If they ever let you back home to Canada, I'm sure you're going to knock out this COVID thing next, and we'll have you on when you do that. Thanks again for this chat. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of our COVID special. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We'll be back in just a week because this was an in-between episode. So you can hear us then until, thanks for listening.